you would humble us by his majesty, by the fact that he is light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, through whom all things came into being. And Lord, we pray that you would humble us by the fact that you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, ever exist as one God in three persons, having the same nature, sharing power and glory, being worshipped together. And Lord, we pray that the profundity of the mystery of how one can be three and how Christ can be God and man, we pray that this would both exercise our intelligence and call forth from us all the resources that you have given to us as human beings with brains who can think, but we pray also, Lord, that we would see that we cannot come to the end of these things. And Lord, we pray the same way about the doctrine of election, the fact that in the case of Jacob and Esau, before the twins were born, as Paul writes in Romans 9, or had done anything good or bad, their mother was told, the older will serve the younger. Lord, we pray that you would help us to believe everything your word says, that you are sovereign, that you are omniscient, that this is your doing. And Lord, we pray that you would also help us to maintain that Esau made choices. Esau had a heart that he did not keep with all vigilance. And he chose in accordance with his desires and his choices aligned with your eternal purposes. Lord, we pray that you would keep us from thinking that we have solved the mystery. We pray that you would help us to embrace and affirm every aspect of it. And we pray that you'd give us wisdom as we read your word. We pray that you would make us those who delight in you and who, because we love you, we return again and again to your word, paying ever more close attention to it, learning its intricacies, growing in our understanding of it, that we might know you. And Lord, from what we see in the lives of Jacob and Esau, we pray that you would teach us wisdom. We pray that you would teach us to fear you, to turn away from evil, to love mercy, to do justice, to walk humbly. Lord, all this we ask that you would work in us now by the power of your word as your spirit makes it what it is, living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And we pray that you would Help us to be those who live for you with everything that we are. All these things we ask in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. <clears throat> I would invite you to open this morning to Genesis chapter 33. And in this passage, we have what I think is a difficult text to interpret. Because if we were to simply come to this text by itself... And, and just read it in isolation from uh, things that come after, both in the book of Genesis and in the rest of the Old and New Testaments, we might be inclined to think, oh, this is such a sweet reunion. What a sweet and happy day. What a, what a loving reconciliation among estranged brothers. And, and the problem for me is that... It, it, it can be taken that way, but there are indications, both in this chapter and in succeeding chapters, that that's not the way we should take the passage. So what, what, I, what I hope uh, is continuing to happen, as I said last week, 
is that as we study the Bible together, as we look together into God's Word, we're all growing in our ability to understand the Scriptures and to interpret the Scriptures. And so, actually, this week, before we walk through Genesis 33 together, which we will do, I want to first point to some things that I think will, will help us to rightly interpret um, what we're going to find in this chapter. Some of these things we've already seen. Uh, the reason that we had the call to worship that we had this morning, that might have, seen, might have seemed strange to you. Why, are, why do we have a call to worship from the book of Obadiah? And what is this, this business about telling those people not to celebrate the destruction of, of Judah and Jerusalem? Well, in the book of Obadiah, what's happening is the Israelite prophet Obadiah is actually denouncing the descendants of Esau. And the reason Obadiah the prophet is denouncing the descendants of Esau is because when Jerusalem was destroyed in 586 BC, when the, the Babylonians came and they burned down the temple and they murdered the king's sons and they carried the people off into exile, when that happened, the Edomites were cheering them on. The descendants of Esau were celebrating what the Babylonians were doing to their kinsmen, those who lived in, in Israel. They were saying of the city of Jerusalem, lay it bare, down to its foundations. It's shocking. And then at the end of the book of Obadiah, the prophet of Obadiah is saying, a king is going to arise, and he is going to reign over Mount Esau. So you can see there's conflict there between Jacob and Esau, Israel and Edom in the book of Obadiah. We also saw some things in the passages that, that Gabe read. And, and before, we, before I draw your attention back to those, let me, let me draw your attention here in Genesis 33 to the way that Jacob, in verse 14 of this chapter, he seems, he, well, I say seems to, he tells Esau, let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Sire. Now, as we work through the passage in a few moments, we are going to get the impression that Jacob is telling Esau, you go on ahead, I'll follow you after. You're going to Sire, I'm following you to Sire. And that is not at all what happens. Esau goes on to Sire... Jacob doesn't go anywhere near Sire. Sire, we've, we've done this map thing on the wall here. Forgive me, I don't have my picture um, on, the, on the screen for you. But, you know, if, if that box with the white plexiglass over it is the Dead Sea, and on the other side of that box is uh, the land of Israel, that, that strip of wall that you can see between that box and the balcony, and then, and then the balcony is the Mediterranean Sea, okay? If that's our map, Sire is under the box. It is not in the land of promise. It, it, Sire, Mount Sire is under the box. It's, it's south of the Dead Sea. And, and there is no way to consider Mount Sire part of the land of promise. Jacob, he's north of the Dead Sea. He crosses the Jordan River in the land of promise, and he stays there. He never even turns his face in the direction of Sire. So I think that should inform our reading of the passage. Also, um, in, as, we, as, as we saw in the passage that Gabe read, Jacob and Esau, the, we, we didn't read all the intervening verses, right? We didn't read all of Genesis 33, all of Genesis 34, all of Genesis 34. I just had Gabe read at the very end. But there is no indication in those intervening verses, that Jacob and Esau ever again had anything to do with one another. The next mention of Esau comes when the brothers come together at the funeral. Maybe you've known some families like that, where there's a disruption in the relationships, and the next time a pair of brothers see one another is when they come together to bury mom or dad. That's what we've got here. And the time period between Jacob's return to the land and Isaac's death is something like 25 years. 25 years, and Jacob and Esau never see one another after this encounter. 
it's also, I think, really sad to note that there's no mention of Isaac in these intervening verses either. So maybe Jacob made contact and had, had some interact. I don't know. We're not told. We're only told what's here. But Jacob, you remember, back in Genesis 27, he blew up his family. He and his mother conspired together to steal Esau's blessing from, their fa- from Jacob's father, Rebekah's husband. And I think that had lasting ramifications between Jacob and Isaac and between Jacob and Esau. And there's a kind of, there's a kind of smoking of the peace pipe, if you will, here in Genesis 33. But I don't think that means that everything's hunky-dory. I don't think that means that everything is happy between them. And then there are other things that that I've alluded to. And um, I want to go ahead and, and draw your attention to, to just a couple of these things. The reason I had Gabe read those verses in chapter 36, I don't know if you noticed this, in 36, 6 through 8, how similar that sounds to Lot and Abraham. Do you remember back in Genesis 13, Lot and Abraham, they've both become so wealthy that they can't dwell close to one another, so they have to separate. And Genesis 36 presents the separation between Jacob and Esau in those terms. And and that has to do with what I think Moses is doing in the broader structure of the book. He wants you to think of the separation of Lot and Abraham when he presents you with the separation from Jacob and Esau. And we'll see some more indicators of that in Genesis 33 when we get into it. And then also, um, as, as you go through the rest of the Old Testament, let me invite you to put a finger here in Genesis 33 and look with me at Malachi chapter 1. And in Malachi chapter 1, the prophet Malachi is prophesying to the people of Israel who have come back to the land of Israel after the destruction of the city, the burning down of the temple, and their exile from the land. So just to put some dates on this, in 586 BC, as I mentioned a moment ago, the Babylonians invaded the land, they destroyed the temple, they killed the king's sons, they carried the people off into exile. In 539 BC, the Babylonians were conquered by the the Medes and the Persians, and the, the new king over all those lands and regions and peoples, he said, anybody that's from the land of Israel that wants to go back there and placate the God in that part of the world can go. And so he, he even financed the people to return to the land and rebuild the temple. And Malachi is prophesying to those people who have come back from exile. And this is what he says to them in Malachi chapter 1, verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. And it's as though, well, Malachi knows his audience. It's as though he anticipates how they're going to respond. Oh, some love. Temple got ruined. And we just have this paltry imitation of what it used to be. Land continues to be not thriving, not flourishing. All those prophecies in the book of Isaiah about the land land becoming the Garden of Eden. We're not there. Some love. I'm struggling, not financially successful. My family's not doing well. My kids aren't living the way I want them. Some love you're showing to me. Some love. And Malachi says, yes, I have loved you. So look at verse 2 there. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? And here's the Lord's question. Is not Esau Jacob's brother? Declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated Now, what the Lord is saying here is, I chose Jacob, not Esau. That's what he's saying. He's saying, remember that oracle that was given to their mother, Rebekah? The older will serve the younger. That's the choice of Jacob. And the Lord is saying, I set my love in eternity past on Jacob. And the Lord is saying that with everything that he is, he is determined to do good for Jacob and his descendants. Whatever their circumstances look like. It doesn't look like they're prospering. It doesn't look like they are the kingdom of God. They are a a paltry little nothing outpost of the Persian Empire that, that is a city in ruins. That's what they look like. In reality, they are the city of God. They are where the kingdom of God 
is at work. That's, what, that's what's reality. And so look at what the Lord goes on to say. I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his, his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. That's what's going on in Edom. So what the Lord is saying is, Israel, you, you want to know how I've loved you? I promise that the kingdom of God is going to be established among you. And I am going to accomplish the kingdom of... You're looking at the wrong things. You're looking at your immediate circumstances. You need to look at the purposes and promises of God. You need, you need to look at what the Lord is going to do in the future for all time. You need to look at what the Lord is actively doing among you now. You don't need to look at these circumstances that make it look like or make you feel like God doesn't love you. The reality is God set his everlasting love on you, and it will never be taken away, and it will infallibly, inexorably result in your everlasting joy. Now, I think that's a word for us, right? Because all of us are tempted, aren't we, to look at our lives and to say, I'm not getting everything that I want. Where is the love of God in my life? And if we listen to Malachi, he's saying, it was put on you before the foundation of the world. When, as Paul writes in Ephesians 1, in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons. That's where the love of God is. Now, this is, this is and should be profoundly humbling to us. Because what it tells us is that Jacob didn't get chosen because Jacob was doing good things. And it tells us that we didn't get chosen because we were doing good things. God didn't choose Jacob because Jacob was righteous. God chose Jacob because God loved Jacob. That's why he chose him. From eternity past. God chose you because he loved you. That's why he chose you. From eternity. What's the difference between Jacob and Esau? The love of God. What's the explanation of that? There is no explanation of that. It is a mystery. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children that forever that we may obey. If we go back now to Genesis 33, we could, we could trace this forward into, into Romans, Romans 9. I've mentioned that already uh, before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, so forth. We could trace it into Hebrews 12, where the author of Hebrews speaks of how though Esau sought the blessing with tears, he found no place for repentance. He found no place for repentance. Repentance is a gift that God gives to people. If, if you commit a sin and you realize your guilt and you come to know the gravity of what you've done and you recoil and you turn away, God is in his kindness, Romans 2, 4. God... God kindly leads his people to repentance. He's giving you the gift of the ability to see what's going on and to turn from that evil. That's a gift of God to be able to repent. God gave that gift to Jacob. He didn't give that gift to Esau. That's a mystery. Why would God give it to one and not the other? We don't know. We can't know. God alone knows. What we can say is that what Esau wanted, Esau chose. Esau wanted the blessing. He sought that with tears. Esau didn't want to repent. Esau, what would repentance look like for Esau? I think repentance for Esau would look like this. Jacob, I know that God promised Abraham our grandfather and Isaac our father that strip of ground between the balcony and the plexiglass. You know what I'm saying, right? The land of Canaan. I know that God promised him that land. And Jacob, I know that God revealed to our mother, Rebecca, that you're the chosen one. So I know, Jacob, that you're where the kingdom of God is active. Jacob, you're the, you're the leader. Where are you going to live? How can, I, how can I serve you? How can I help? How can I be part of the operation? How can I get involved in God's kingdom, Jacob? I'm not going to Sire. God hasn't promised Sire to anybody. 
I want to be in the land of promise. I want to be, I want to bless our, our grandfather Abraham. I want to be on board with the blessing of Abraham. I want to receive the blessing of Abraham. So Jacob, that means I've got to bless you. So I'm turning away from evil. I'm turning away from idolatry. And I'm getting on board with God's program. That's what repentance looks like. If you're here today and you're not a believer in Jesus, Jesus is the long-promised descendant of Abraham. So if you want to receive the blessing of Abraham today, you know what you need to do? You need to bless Jesus. You need to get on board with Jesus. You need to turn away from all your attempts to live your life apart from Jesus and say, Jesus is the boss. And wherever Jesus is, that's where I'm going to be. Whatever Jesus is up to, that's what I want to be up to. And that's why we study the Bible. Because God reveals Christ in the word and God reveals himself in the word. And so we want to know the scriptures because we want to be on board with what Jesus is doing. So if you want to become a Christian, I would just encourage you to listen to what's being said and to, to, to pray that God would give you the gift of, of repentance, that God would give you the ability to recoil from the evil that attracts you, that God would give you the recognition that doing those things is wrong before him they provoke his wrath and then that you would fear God that you would say God I don't want to provoke your wrath I want to I want to be accepted before you I want to please you and so I want to turn away from my transgression and I want to hope fully and completely in you that's what it looks like to repent today let's look together at Genesis 33 and I, my, my hope and prayer for all of us is that we would all know that anyone who's experienced the mercy of God like Jacob received the mercy of God, not a righteous person, not making good choices, not doing good things, and then God inexplicably blesses and chooses and, and saves anybody like that, we need to embrace hearts of humility. Because this was God's doing, not ours. This was God's mercy, not our virtue. This, was, this is all down to who God is. Genesis 33, verse 1. And Jacob lifted up his eyes. Now, before I read on, let me just invite you to drop down to verse 5, where we're going to see, and when Esau lifted up his eyes. So we've got a repetition of this phrase, this description of somebody lifting up their eyes. And in God's providence, as I was reading this months ago, we just happened to be at that time in Genesis 13. And back in Genesis 13, we have um, the, uh, the, the patriarch, Abraham, encourage Lot to, to choose whatever land he wants. And he tells Lot in Genesis 13, or, or I'm sorry, we're to, he tells Lot, you choose the land you want. And Genesis 13, 10 tells us, Lot lifted up his eyes. And then a few verses later in verse 14, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes. So in the same way that we've got Jacob lifting up his eyes and Esau lifting up his eyes, back in Genesis 13, we had Lot lifting up his eyes and Abraham lifting up his eyes. And then again, as we saw in the reading that Gabe did in Genesis 36, there's this separation of Lot and Abraham like, I'm, I'm sorry, <laughs> separation of Jacob and Esau, like the separation of uh, Abraham and Lot. We'll talk more about those aspects of the narrative when we get to Genesis 36. I just want to draw your attention to them here. Genesis 33, Jacob lifted up his eyes, verse 1, and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. We talked last week when we were in Genesis 32, about how it's not altogether clear whether Esau comes for a welcome home party or for a, an avenging war on Jacob. Uh, and, and I think that Moses intentionally leaves it ambiguous because, because of the way he's going to unfold the story. What is clear is that a change has happened in Jacob. As we saw last week, Jacob wrestled with the angel all night before this happens. And I want to draw your attention back to chapter 32 and, and look at what we see in verse 21 
where, where the present or the offering passed on ahead of Jacob, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. And then in the previous verse, in verse 20, he had instructed his, his servants to say, you shall say, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes, I'm propitiate his wrath, uh, with, the, with the offering that goes ahead of me. So it seems in Genesis 32 that Jacob means to send everybody in front of him, and then he comes last. But overnight... God had wrestled Jacob all night long. And God had said to Jacob, what is your name? And Jacob had confessed his identity. I'm the heel grabber. I'm the, I'm the stealer of the blessing. I'm the deceiver of my father-in-law. My name is Jacob. And God said to him, no longer is your name to be called Jacob. You will be called Israel because you persisted with God. You persisted, you persevered with God. So we're going to call you something like the one who continues with God, the one who persists with God, Israel. You get a new name. So he gets a new name, and then look at what, he's, what he does first here in Genesis 33.1. Esau was coming, so the rest of the verse, he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, and then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. Verse 3, he himself went on before them. And I think that's beautiful. Because here this man, who seems to have intended to be behind everyone else, just in case Esau has come in war. If Esau has come in war and Jacob comes last, maybe Jacob can get away. But after a night of wrestling with the Lord, and the Lord touches his hip and puts his hip out of socket and gives him a new name, and this man gets up with a limp, and he goes to the front of the camp. And he says, I'm the one who caused the problem with this man Esau, and I'm going to be the one who leads the way with these people. It, it puts me in mind of the Lord Jesus, that great story of the night that they came to arrest him. And the Roman soldiers come out for him. It's a, it's a cohort of soldiers and all these officials from the high priests. And they've got torches and lanterns. And Jesus steps forward and says to them, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, I am. And the text tells us that they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, I think the only thing that would cause them to draw back, I mean, you know, they're in a garden at night. They're not scared of this guy. So I think that Jesus probably at some level, in some way, manifested his glory, his divine glory, and caused all those Roman soldiers and all those Jewish officials who have shown up to arrest him in John 18 to draw back, and it's like he knocks them down. And then he lets them up and says to them again, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, if it's me that you seek, you take me and you let these go free. And that's what he did for us. He put himself in our place. It's the fulfillment of what Jacob does when he puts himself at the front of the line. So we worship Jesus. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we worship Jesus because he gave himself for us. He died for us. And I hope that in everybody's heart, what this causes is a response that says, I'm going to take up the cross and follow Jesus. And I'm going to lay down my life for others the way that he laid down his life for me. So uh, you'll notice here in verse 2 that we read about Rachel and Joseph. And we've read about these other children. He divided the children in verse 1, put the servants with their children in verse 2, Leah with her children in verse 2. Only child named is Joseph. And then verse 3, he himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Now, at this point, this is where, you know, the interpretation of this passage could go two different ways. And, and I'm, I'm taking it a certain way. And so, you know, I hope you'll just, I hope you'll find this convincing because of the other, the considerations from the rest of the Bible that I've, and the rest of the book of Genesis that I've tried to bring, to, bring into our awareness here. And, and on the basis of those things, 
I'm inclined to think that the gift has worked. We, we talked last week about how all these animals, over 500 animals, Jacob is presenting to this offering that he's giving to Esau. And, and my tally of the worth of this was $260,000 worth of animals. Maybe I'm off, but it's still a massive gift. And I think it has propitiated Esau's wrath at some level. And so, verse 4, Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And you might be thinking, well, that looks beautiful. That looks wonderful. And I would just say, yeah, we've seen that kind of welcome before, haven't we, in Genesis? This is how Laban welcomed Jacob. Laban was really excited to see Jacob. And then he defrauded him, deceived him, sent the, sent the older sister Leah in instead of the promised younger sister Rachel. And then he kept changing his wages, and he made, he made Jacob work like a slave for 20 years in the fields. And so the fact that somebody greets you like this is not necessarily an indication that they have wonderful, loving, regenerated hearts. You understand what I'm saying? I don't, in other words, you could read this and say, oh, look at what the change is in Esau. I don't think so. Not on the basis of what we've seen uh, from the rest of Scripture. Verse 5, when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and the children... He said, who are these with you? Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. What I see here that is so encouraging is that there's no mention of mandrakes. There's no mention of mandrakes. And as this passage goes on, you know, Jacob, they did that fertility thing with the mandrakes that Reuben found. As the passage goes on, Jacob's going to talk about all the ways that God has blessed him with all these animals. Not going to be any mention of sticks. It's like Jacob at last understands where the kids came from. This was the blessing of God on his life and how the flocks and, and, and herds got multiplied. Not because of that trick he did with the rods, but because God blessed him. Verse 6, then the servants drew near, they and their children, this is uh, Zilpah and Bilhah, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. And, you know, I've, I've indicated that I think these repeated words and phrases are significant. So I think the, the lifting up of the eyes in verse 1 and then in verse 5, that starts these two corresponding units. And then the mention of Rachel and Joseph is in verse 2 is reversed down in verse 7, Joseph and Rachel. And that ends these, uh, these two units with the, the meeting of, with, with uh, Jacob going before and then Esau running to meet him centered there in verses 3 and 4. And so that, that whole section is a unit there in verses 1 through 7. The next unit in, entails this conversation that ensues between Jacob and Esau. Verse 8, Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. And we talked about this last week. I think that Jacob is still not, he's not yet where he needs to be. And we talked last week about how Jacob, with the offering and the seeking to propitiate the wrath and feeling the fear of Esau, it's like he's directing everything that he should feel about the Lord to Esau instead. And I think the same thing's going on here where he's, he's trying to find favor in Esau's eyes. Now, it works. It works. And Esau doesn't kill him. And Esau doesn't attack him. And Esau lets him part from him in peace. But that doesn't mean that Esau is, you know, I mean, I'm sorry, that Jacob is necessarily uh, thinking rightly about all this. I think, as I indicated last week, I think that Jacob should be directing all of this fine favor and fear and uh, seeking to propitiate and, and to be accepted and all this. I think he should be thinking about the Lord on the basis of the way that, that Moses presents the, the language. Verse 9, Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please. If I have found favor in your sight, there's that again, then accept my offering from my hand. And this, this accept language 
is also language that you'll find all over the book of, of Leviticus, you know? When a man realizes his guilt and he brings his offering and he makes atonement, the word that was used in uh, 3220, uh, he will be accepted by the Lord. That language recurs repeatedly in Leviticus. So again, I think that Jacob is thinking about Esau the way he should be thinking about the Lord, and he's, he's moving in the right direction, but he's, he's a few clicks off still. He needs to have some things adjusted. And I think that's encouraging to all of us because we can be believing, we can be moving in the right direction, we can be trying to worship the Lord with everything we are, and we can be a few clicks off. We can be misdirecting our, our goals or our, our desires or our, our aspirations, what we're trying to achieve. All of this can be just, a, and, and sometimes we just sort of need to be adjusted to where it's right side up, pointed in the right direction. And then that next statement there, continuing in Jacob's, again, I think he's not thinking about this right. I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. No, no, Jacob, not, not, no, don't think so. And you have accepted me. But in verse 17, I think he gets something profoundly right. And, and before I read this verse, let me just re remind you of chapter 27. Genesis 27 Jacob and Esau's father said to Esau, go prepare a meal that I may bless you. Their mother overheard, and she sent Jacob, and Jacob prepared a feast, and Jacob came in, and their father said, who are you? And Jacob said, I am Esau, your son. And Isaac blessed Jacob, thinking it was Esau, and Jacob stole the blessing. Verse 17, Jacob says to Esau, Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me. Jacob wronged Esau. Jacob made restitution. Now, in, in the providence of God, the blessing was for Jacob. So I think that if Jacob hadn't sought to steal the blessing, somehow God would have worked it out so that Jacob received the blessing. I don't know how, but nothing is too difficult for the Lord. One way or another, that would have been brought to pass. The blessing was, in other words, Jacob didn't need to sin by stealing the blessing, deceiving his father, Bold-faced lying to his dad. He didn't need to do that to get the blessing. The blessing was his because God had told his mother, the older will serve the younger. The blessing was his. So the, so the, the blessing of God, the line of descent, that's all with Jacob. That's not what Jacob is restoring to Esau. What Jacob, is, I think, is restoring to Esau is the way that he defrauded Esau. In other words, Jacob is not somehow surrendering his status in the line of, of choice no, that's not what he's doing. What he's doing is, is acknowledging, I did wrong, and I wronged you, and I know that was hurtful, and I'm trying to make restitution here. And I, I think this is beautiful. I think this is another indication that what happened that night when he wrestled with the Lord and the Lord touched his hip and changed his name, I think that's another indication, in addition to him putting himself forward you know, the first, first one who's going to face the wrath. And now what he says is, I was in the wrong and I'm making it right or trying to. Please accept this from me. This is, this is what he needs to do in order to bring about reconciliation. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me. And then the next phrase re reads, and because I have enough, um, and I just, I just want to tell you another way to translate the Hebrew that I think would be more faithful, you could render this something like, that, like because everything or the whole is to me. Everything belongs to me, essentially is what Jacob says. 
The whole of it belongs. So Jacob, I can give this to you. I'm sorry, Esau, Jacob says to Esau, I can give this to you because God has promised me everything. That's what he says. Now, I think what Jacob is recognizing is, I've got the blessing of Abraham. The blessing of Abraham has come on my life. And it's, it's as though Jacob is saying with Romans 8, 28, everything's going to work for my good. Everything is promised to me. I can give this lavish gift to you, Esau, because, of, because God's promised me the whole thing. I think that's what Jacob is saying. So it seems to me here that Jacob gets it. And then Moses tells us, thus he urged him and he took it. So Esau receives the gift. As we go forward, here's what I would propose to you. I think that Jacob knows that Esau is still Esau. I think Jacob understands what happened to him that night at the Jabbok. And he can look at his brother and he can see this hasn't happened to Esau. And so I think that as we proceed here, Jacob is, he, he knows that Esau has been propitiated. He knows that Esau is not going to kill him right now, but he also knows that Esau doesn't have a circumcised heart. Esau has not given, been, been given the gift of repentance. And so verse 12, Esau said, let us journey on our way and I will go ahead of you. Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. So I, I see this as a polite way to say, no thank you. And here's, a, here's a, a valid reason why I don't want to be led by you, Esau, to your home. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children. And, and Now this part, I don't... I don't know what to do with this until I come to my Lord in Sayer. I think Jacob maybe shouldn't have said that. I think. It doesn't seem to me. Now, the reason I say this is because things could have happened that Moses doesn't tell us about. Okay? I mean, maybe Jacob did go visit Esau in Sayer, but no, Moses doesn't include it. And so it seems to me that this is old deceiving Jacob cropping up again. This is Jacob saying to Esau, you go on ahead and I'll follow after. You go on to Sire, and I'll come to you at Sire. Meanwhile, it's not Jacob's intention. To, I don't. If, if all we have is what Moses tells us, Jacob never goes to Sire, never gives any intention of going to Sire. Sire is that way. Jacob goes that way. You see what I'm saying? Sire is south. Jacob goes west. Verse 15. So Esau said. Let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? You know, this could be a, this could be a kind offer. Let me leave a, a guard to escort you, or it could be a threat. Let me leave some officials to escort you, and maybe they'll compel you to come if you don't want to come. He said, what need is there? And then here's the, here's the let me find favor in the sight of my Lord that's at the, at the end of this unit. He said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. And, and so that concludes their conversation. It began with Jacob saying in verse 8, I've sent all these people to find favor in your sight. It concludes with Jacob essentially saying to Esau, you go your way and I'll go my way. Let me in that way find favor in your sight. And so, verse 17, Jacob journeyed to Succoth, that's west, and built a house and made booths for his livestock. We're going to come back to that in just a second. Therefore, the name of that place is called Succoth. The word uh, booths in English is the Hebrew word Succoth. And so sometimes the Feast of Booths, which is also known as the Feast of Tabernacles, sometimes that feast is referred to as the Feast of Succoth. Particularly if you read Jewish literature, you'll see references to Succoth, the Feast of Booths. Verse 18, and Jacob came safely to the city. Um, another way to render that word safely there is in peace. Jacob came in peace. And the ESV has a footnote on the word in the lower margin. It says, or peacefully. And that may remind you of Genesis 28, where when Jacob sets up the pillar and he pours oil on it and he makes a vow to the Lord and he says, if you bring me back here in peace, and now he's come back to the land of promise in peace. 
Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel, which means God, the God of Israel. Um, this piece of ground, at the end of Genesis 33, Jacob's going to give to Joseph as, a, as sort of a special inheritance. Um, going back now to that reference to Succoth in verse 17, you, you may remember that when we were in Genesis 31, when Jacob fled from Laban, and I pointed out that there were all of these, these, these uh, similarities in the descriptions of the way that Jacob fled from Laban in the same way that at the Exodus, Israel fled from Egypt. And then the description of Laban being told that Jacob had fled is just like the description of Pharaoh being told that Israel has fled. And then the way that Pharaoh is described gathering his chariots and pursuing after Israel is just like the way that Laban gathers his kinsmen and pursues after Jacob. And so I think I actually titled the sermon uh, when we were in Genesis 31, Jacob's Exodus. And then um, now uh, Jacob, <clears throat> you remember last week in, in chapter 32, Jacob essentially has met the captain of the Lord's hosts at the, at the Jordan River in, the, in a similar way. Uh, similarly, Joshua met the captain of the Lord's hosts in Joshua 5 as the people were going to conquer the land. And, and then here in chapter 33, he has this encounter with Esau. And in Numbers chapter 20, um, the people of Israel, as they're coming up to the land of promise, they have this encounter with the people of Edom. The people of Edom won't even sell them water. I mean, Israel is like, we'll pay you for the water. And Edom is like, no, we, there's, there's ongoing hostility and enmity between the descendants of Jacob and the descendants of Esau. We might say between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. <clears throat> and, and now we get this reference to Succoth because Jacob, on his way into the land of promise, is dwelling in these temporary shelters, these tabernacles, these booths. Now, why would Moses do all of this? I think that Moses, writing Genesis, for the generation that has come out of Egypt, it's as if he's saying to them, your father Jacob, he went through the same kinds of things that we've gone through. An exodus from Egypt, a, an encounter at the Jordan River, uh, a, a time in booths on the way to the land of promise, an encounter, an, not a really happy, healthy, good interaction with Edom on the way, Esau on the way. And then in the next chapter, chapter 34, there's going to be like an anticipation of the conquest of the land because they're... Uh, the descendants of Jacob, the sons of Jacob, are going to put this whole city under the ban. They're going to dis dis destroy them entirely. So Moses is saying to the Exodus generation, what happened to you is what happened to our father Jacob. And that both encourages them because it says to them, God brought Jacob safely into the land. God can bring us safely into the land. And then it also starts creating these patterns, the repeated pattern of events in Jacob's life. And you remember we saw the same thing in Abraham's life, didn't we? This Exodus-like deliverance of Sarah, and then they come up through the wilderness to the land of promise where they make a covenant with the Lord. It's really similar to the Exodus. So what God did with Abraham is what God did with Jacob, is what God did with the nation of Israel. And then the prophets, as they prophesy the salvation that we enjoy, they speak of it like it's a new Exodus. They, and this is why when Jesus comes on the scene, you remember what John the Baptist said? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And at the transfiguration, Jesus is discussing with Moses and Elijah, the ESV renders it his departure, but there's a footnote on it that gives you the real word. He's discussing with Moses and Elijah his exodus that he's going to accomplish at Jerusalem. So what I'm saying to you is, the pattern of salvation seen in Abraham's life, seen in Jacob's life, seen in the nation's life at the Exodus, that pattern is what the New Testament authors present as being fulfilled when Christ dies on the cross and rises from the dead. So the way that God saved us is the same way that he saved Jacob. 
in the same way that he saved Abraham, and the same way that he saved the nation of Israel. But the salvation that we have received is the fulfillment of all of those. How do we respond to these things? I would encourage you to respond as Paul does in Romans 11. And, and I think what's driving Paul to this is the recognition that in the same way that Jacob wasn't any more righteous than Esau, any more deserving of God's love than Esau, so also we who have received this salvation, we're no more righteous or worthy or deserving than anyone else. But God in his merciful kindness has revealed himself to us. This should create in us all kinds of things. But, but big among them should be profound humility and, and just pervasive gratitude. And then readiness to get to the front and to lay down our lives for others. And, a, and an all-consuming desire to worship the living God as Paul does in Romans 11 when he writes in verses 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. That means we never come to the end of the mysteries. We never get to the end of the riddle. The judgments are unsearchable. And how inscrutable his ways. That means we will never come to the end of the infinitely inscrutable ways of the infinite God. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray together.